12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from, from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You did. Well, good morning, church. Thank you all for being here on this uh, holiday weekend. Um, so who has the day off tomorrow? School or work or who has so a lot of people today? Okay. Who, who still has to go to work or school tomorrow? Got one in the back. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. And who, it just, it doesn't matter. Like a week is a week, Labor Day, these holidays, they don't affect you at all. Just kind of, you still got responsibilities. Come on. I know there's some people, moms. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you still got to, right, parents, you still have to take care of your kids tomorrow. That is something that's still, uh, you know, you need to do. Uh, but I do, do appreciate you guys being here over this holiday weekend. Uh, before we jump into the word, uh, let me pray. Let me pray for us. I believe that God has a good word for us this morning. And let's pray for those that might be traveling. So pray with me. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is uh, life-giving that it is sustaining, that it is satisfying to us. We thank you that it has the power to change us and transform us. We ask that you'd be with those who are uh, traveling this, this weekend, uh, whether it be seeing friends or family or having rest and vacation. We ask that you'd watch over them, keep them safe, uh, and bring them back to us uh, safely and quickly, Lord, we ask. But Lord, as we approach your word, I ask that you would give grace that you would assist me as I articulate your truth to our people. I ask that you would flood our minds with a peace that is beyond all understanding. And may this word be like precious and sweet, savory food that sustains us and satisfies us. And may our hearts be more knit closer to yours, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark uh, chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. The year was 1917, and it was a piercingly cold winter night in New York City. And huddled in the back room of a bar, a bar named The Hellhole, uh, was a gathering of artists and writers, and among them was a left-wing journalist named Dorothy Day and her buddy, a premier playwright, Eugene O'Neill. And on this particular cold night, Eugene O'Neill started quoting from memory a Francis Thompson poem titled, The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven. It's a poem that is a famous poem and it, because it describes humanity's common propensity to run from a God who patiently and lovingly pursues us. And it was on this cold winter night in 1917 that the poem would start, uh, that through the, the reading of this poem, the hound of heaven would start to work on the heart of Dorothy Day. And there huddled in the bar, Eugene O'Neill started quoting the poem, and he quoted, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways. Of my own mind and in the mist of tears, I hid from him. I hid from him. 
And that poem shook Dorothy Day down to the core, but it wasn't until 10 years later that she became a Christian and she ended up living the rest of her life uh, serving the homeless on the streets not far from that bar where she first heard the poem and first heard about the hound of heaven, where she first heard about a God who patiently and lovingly pursued her even though she was running from him. And that poem has had a dramatic effect on many writers like G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. And I believe that it has had such a widespread impact on people because it strikes a chord that all of our hearts can resonate with. Right? Our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to run and hide from God just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We all do this. We run from God. But the question is, is God pursuing us? We run and hide from God. We have in some way or another rejected him. But what can we learn from Jesus about how God pursues his people? So look with me now at Mark chapter 12. We arrive in this part of the gospel of Mark and we're picking up the story likely on Tuesday or Wednesday of Passion Week, meaning this is the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry here uh, before his death and resurrection. He has entered into Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And now he is in the midst of conflicts with the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. And these conflicts are going to continue in the next few passages in Mark. Look now at Mark 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. So let's, let's stop there for a second. Let's talk about parables. Let me remind you what a parable is. Uh, one of the best definitions I think I've heard of a parable is that is, it is an earthly story that teaches a heavenly truth. Okay? An earthly story that teaches a heavenly truth. It's a story that Jesus would use and teach with that people could relate with. It's something they could understand and relate with, but it was coming alongside a spiritual truth about the kingdom of God that he was trying to teach. It's a earthly story that teaches a heavenly truth. Now, typically when Jesus taught in parables, it was so that those who were truly seeking truth would hear it and understand it and seek it out, uh, but it was a little uh, uh, it was a little confusing to those who were just a part of the crowd or who were uh, his enemies, some of the religious leaders of the day who were just trying to catch him up in his words. He would often teach in parables so that the truth would be hidden from those who opposed him or who weren't truly seeking truth. However, this parable is different because this parable is clear. It is plain to all who listen. And we even see at the end of the passage that Robin just read that the religious leaders, they get he's talking about them. He's making this one very clear and plain to them. And so uh, in order for me to help you see this parable a little uh, clearer, we're going to have up on the screen a, a key, okay, so that we can interpret this parable rightly, okay? And Kevin, you can leave this up till we need to go to the next text, okay? So the owner of the vineyard, the one who plants and starts it all, represents God the Father. The vineyard represents the people of God. The tenets represent the religious leaders of that day, those in the Sanhedrin and and, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The servants represent the faithful prophets that God sent to his people. And the son represents Jesus. So look with me now back at Mark 12, verse 1 through 5. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Okay, this would be a story, this would be a situation that would be very common to the people in that culture and in that setting. They'd be very familiar with this, okay? Uh, To have an absentee landowner, someone who owns the land, but goes to a distant country and leases the land out for people to work uh, the land, and they would settle upon an agreed amount for the workers to get and for the owner to get, okay? So this was something they would be very familiar with as they're hearing this, okay? 
But first notice the generous provisions that the owner provides. He plants, he starts, he initiates the vineyard. I mean, typically planting a vineyard is very hard work. In that area of the world, there are a ton of rocks and stones that need to be cleared out. The soil has to be prepared. It would take a lot of hard work to prepare a ground to plant a vineyard. And then look, the man put a fence around it, right? Which a fence would provide protection against wild animals. He built a tower, which would provide a place for the workers to sleep at night and to store uh, uh, all their tools. And it would be a place that they could go to the top of the tower and they could keep watch over the vineyard to make sure there was no thieves or anyone that would seek harm to the vineyard. The provisions that the owner provides are generous. Look back at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, I mean, this is, this is unbelievable, all right? Typically, an arrangement like this, after someone starts and plants a vineyard, it would usually be about five years uh, before the owner could expect to get, collect some fruit and profit from it, okay? But this is unbelievable what happens when the owner sends servants to get what is rightfully his. This would be shocking. It should be shocking to us as we read it. It was shocking to those who originally heard it, which is usually how Jesus works when he teaches in parables. He goes for some shock and awe, okay? But this just seems so unjust, right? I mean, the owner planted and started and he leased it and now he's coming to collect what's rightfully his and his servants are being beaten and shamed and some are even being killed. And while this is a shocking and an unjust part of the parable, this accurately describes the history of the people of God and God sending prophets and messengers to them. Jesus said in Matthew 23, which we'll have up here on the screen, He says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this gen generation. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Here's a few quick examples of some of the messengers God had sent. Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple. And most recently, John the Baptist was beheaded. Like if God was putting together a want ad for a prophet or messenger, right? I mean, he could not in good conscience uh, promise health and wealth and that all things will go well for you if you sign up to be a messenger of God. Most messengers of God do not get platforms on Twitter. They do not become influencers on Instagram. Most of them are persecuted and shamed and killed. And so later today, we'll have signups for anyone that wants to be a pastor or missionary. Get you, get you signed up real quick. But why? Why is this? Why are most of the messengers of God persecuted and shamed and killed? Why? Because in our sin, humanity hates God and wants to be God instead. And therefore, we hate the messengers of God. 
Even, even atheists, most atheists, I've had some friends that have been atheists, most atheists that I have talked to, they're not necessarily atheists because that's where the empirical evidence led them. Most of them are so-called atheists because they hate the idea of God. And they want to be God instead. And throughout the nation of Israel's uh, history, we see some seasons of obedience, but we ultimately see people enslaved by sin and rejecting and running from the authority of God. And in doing so, they mistreat and kill his messengers because they want to be God instead. They want to be the owner of the vineyard. But what about you, church? Where are you running from or rejecting the authority of God in your life? Do you forget that he is the owner of all you have and all you are? What parts of your vineyard are you still trying to be the owner of? Sure, maybe you'll toss God a little here and a little there, but what happens when he sends messengers to you, whether it be pastors or brothers and sisters in Christ, to remind you that you are a steward of all that he has given you? What happens in those moments? Well, let's not just focus on the evil tenants in this parable. I now want to direct your attention to some more glorious thoughts. I want you to notice how patient the owner is. I mean, let's be honest. If I was the owner and the first servant came back beat up and empty-handed, I'm telling you I would gather all the troops, go hire all the soldiers for hire I could, and I would have gone right away and put those tenants in their place. But that's not what the owner does. What does he do? He sends another messenger, and another, and another, and another. And sometimes I look at the world and I think, God, like how, how long, O oh Lord, will you allow injustice to persist? Like how, how long will you allow your people to be persecuted? Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world this morning being persecuted. Like, how long, O oh Lord, will you allow this? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow these mass shootings? And how long will you allow human trafficking to continue on? Like, please hurry up, God, and make all things new. I mean, doesn't it seem sometimes like God, like he's moving so slow? And that's what it often seems and feels like to me. But remember, church, the Lord is not slow. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, God is not slow. He is patient. God is not slow. He is patient. And as I was reading this parable, this is how it was hitting me, okay? At first read, it was like, oh my goodness, those evil tenants, I can't believe them. This is so unjust. Like, why is God being so patient with them? Just put them in their place. Like, come on, come on, come on. And then like a few days into it, it was like, oh no, that's me. Like I'm like the evil tenants all the time. Like praise God, he is patient with them, right? Now there's a process there, but that's probably how many of you might read this as well. It's, it, it, God needs some time to kind of take us through this process of seeing, oh my goodness, like that's me. Praise God that the Lord has been patient with us. And so listen, church, the hound of heaven who pursues us does so with a patience that is just so foreign to us. When Alexander the Great was conquering the known world, whenever he encamped his army around a fortified city and laid siege to it, he would set up a great lantern. 
And this would, it would be this huge, great lantern that could be seen at night, but also even during the day. And what this lantern was, it was a signal to the besieged city that as long as the lamp burned, they had time to be saved and simply by surrendering. As long as the lamp was lit and burning, it was a signal to the city to surrender and you will be saved. But once the light was put out, the city and all that were in it would be given over to destruction. John chapter 12, verse 35 says, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. God has patiently pursued us by sending the light to us, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, that we might become sons and daughters of light to the world around us as well. But the time to surrender to the light will at some point come to an end, and then judgment will come. The Lord is not slow, but he has been patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow. He is patient. Think for a second in your own life. Think, think about how God has been patient with you. And even right now, in the quietness of your own heart, like worship God for his patience towards you. And I think you'll find that you'll start even being more patient with others when you've fully understood and enjoyed how patient God has been towards you. Now look, look back at the parable. What is the owner's solution to the problem of these rebellious tenants? I mean, he sent servant after servant. He sent messenger after messenger. What's the plan now? Look back at verse 6, Mark 12, verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, while the owner appeals to the tenant's integrity when sending his servants to collect his due, he now appeals to the right of the law by sending his son, his son who would have the same legal rights to the property as the owner does. But what do the tenants do? They see the son they maybe assume the owner has died or maybe is too far off to really do anything about it. And they say, come, let's kill him. And the inheritance, all this vineyard will be ours. Now, this story is not only predicting what the religious leaders are scheming to do to Jesus, right? I mean, by him telling this, he's revealing their hearts. He knows that they're kind of scheming and planning in this last week of his life on how they can uh, catch him in something to be able to kill him. But not only is it predicting that, but this, this is the story of, of human history. This is the story of human history. Professor David Garland writes in regards to this text, he says, Do humans think that by erasing God from their lives, they can take control of their earthly and eternal destinies? Apparently so. Here is the utter foolishness of sinful rebellion against God. Here is the utter foolishness of sinful rebellion against God. Humans think that by erasing God from their lives that they can take control of their own earthly and eternal destinies. Human beings think that they can act against God and get away with it. And this is what we see happen. This is what we're going to see happen 
in this last week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection, John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, for a moment, try to step into the parable, okay, and put yourself in the place of the owner because I'm reading this and I'm thinking, okay, I send servant after servant and messenger after messenger. Some they're beating, some they're shaming, some they're killing. Now, if that was me, I'm definitely not going to send one of my sons into that situation, right? I mean, that's, this is a shocking turn of events in the parable. You would expect the owner to send servant, servant, and then army, right? Or like servant, servant, messenger, army, something like that. That would have been just. Like they killed his servants, even just, just what would be just. He has the, the, the right to then seek justice for his, the lives of his servants, But no, the Calvary is not sent. Instead, he sends his son. And you have to sit back and think like, man, this is kind of crazy. Right? I mean, like, what is this? This This is foreign to how we would understand how to deal with the injustice and this thing being wronged here. And whenever something's completely foreign to us, I can't help but think it's, this is something that is set apart. This is something that is other than what we think or know. We sometimes use the word holy. This is something holy. This is something set apart. This is something other than us, other than how we would react in the situation. This is something going on here that we can't even fully appreciate or comprehend. Like, why would the owner send his son to such rebellious people? Why not wipe them out? And Jesus gives us a glimpse into the why. You'll probably see the reference behind the field goal post of football games coming up. From John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal Life For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But this isn't just the faithful love of the father in lovingly sending the son. No, this is also the son willingly giving himself up for his people. Jesus again says in John 10, verse 18, speaking of his own life, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. God saw the evil intentions of mankind and how they treated his messengers. And while he could have rightly and justly condemned the world, sent the army, sent the Calvary, but no, in his faithful love, the Father sends Jesus to save the world instead. And Jesus demonstrates his faithful love by willingly coming to earth, dying the death that was meant for us, and rising from the dead so that we might too have newness of life. The hound of heaven pursues patiently, and he pursues with a faithful love, a love that would lay down his life for those who had rebelled against him. Praise God. I know that if he had not pursued me, I would not have pursued him. We love because he first loved us. Now here's where the parable really gets interesting. Because we're about to see how the evil actions and intentions of people rejecting God's Son will actually accomplish salvation for a people that God is pursuing. Like no one outruns or outschemes the hound of heaven, okay? Look back at Mark 12, verse 9. 
what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants. Notice he's not coming to destroy the vineyard. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Their perceptions were were correct. So they left him and went away. What will the owner do? It says he will come and destroy the tenants. Now, you remember who the tenants are. They're the religious leaders of the day. They, they were the, the Sanhedrin. He, he, Jesus, he said uh, the owner is going to come and essentially destroy the, the Jewish sacrificial system, the Sanhedrin, the priesthood, the temple, all those things. He came to be the true and better temple. He came to be the true and better sacrifice. And in the year A.D. 70, That's exactly what happens when the Romans come and tear down the temple. They kill many of the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And we see in the same way that God had used the Babylonians to carry out his judgment towards his people in the Old Testament, here Jesus is predicting what is about to happen with the Romans. But he says, look, he says, the owner will come and destroy the tenants, not the the vineyard, and he will give the vineyard over to his apostles' leadership and teaching instead of the Jewish religious authorities. You see, the, the owner still has this great love for the vineyard. He still has this great wanting to make sure the vineyard is cared for and that it flourishes and that fruit comes forth. So he did not come to burn and destroy the vineyard. He came to destroy the, the wicked tenants, the, the Jewish religious leaders that were not stewarding what had been entrusted to them well. And so we see after the resurrection, then when God's sends the Holy Spirit. He empowers the apostles and inspires them to write the New Testament. And the apostles now are the leaders and the caretakers of God's vineyard, of God's people. And the apostles go and they plant churches, right? And they go install elders or pastors at these churches. And those elders and pastors equip deacons to serve the people. And the people are equipped to go share the good news of the gospel so that more people would come to the community of faith. So that more people would be taught the word of God by elders. And you see, you see that what's happening, this whole system is transitioning. Jesus is saying this Jewish sacrificial system and the Sanhedrin, this is coming to an end. And instead I'm giving my vineyard to others. And we see this carry out in the New Testament. And really this is what's taking place here, right? We say like Jesus has now sent us, he commissioned his apostles to go make disciples, to go plant churches, to go install elders, to go raise up deacons, to go share the gospel, to go plant more churches. And we are a part of that right now. The owner cares deeply for the vineyard. He's not given up on his people, but he's transitioning who will lead and love and serve his people. And the New Testament clearly points out that this great commissioning, this care of the vineyard was first entrusted to the apostles who then entrusted the people to elders or pastors who then raised up deacons to serve who then equipped people to be raised up and discipled in the church to go plant other churches And so this is why we get so excited about church planting here. And this is a church plant, right? We're a fairly new church, and we have a desire to see other churches planted because we believe the the most effective way to take care of God's people and to see the Great Commission go forth, that more and more people would be made disciples, we believe the most consistent way with Scripture is to go plant churches, 
right? Now we love, we love parachurch organizations. I think God works some great ways through missionaries and evangelists and, and people that aren't necessarily connected with a local church. But I think I, you would see, uh, you see a lot of fruit from even people in parachurch organizations who are working alongside the local church, who are, yes, evangelizing, but helping people get plugged into a local church missionaries that are going and doing mission work, but also getting people into a local church. This was God's way for caring and taking care of his people, his vineyard, cultivating it, seeing that fruit would come forth. And so when we planted a church in Franklin, it was because we want to make disciples in Franklin. And we believe the most effective, fruitful way to make disciples in Franklin, to see people get saved, to see people grow in their love and enjoyment of God, to see God's glory go forth, was yes, to go share the gospel with our neighbors and our our classmates and our co-workers, but it was also to plant a church that would continue to be here in Franklin, be a faithful gospel presence for decades and generations to come, that discipleship might continue to happen in Franklin for years to come. And so you all are a part of that. This isn't something we're just kind of like making up on our own. This was Jesus's plan for his vineyard and for seeing it cultivated and cared for and to see it flourish and bear fruit. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which has turned out to be the psalm of the week. It's part of what the people were shouting as he entered the city on uh, Palm Sunday, right? They were shouting from Psalm 118, 25, and 26. They were shouting, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And now he points them back to verses 22 and 23. He quotes, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, in ancient architecture, uh, the cornerstone was the main stone placed at the foundational corner of the structure. It was usually one of the biggest stones. It was the most important. It was the most solid. And upon it was where you put all the other stones. Stones uh, would rest upon them, and that's how you built a strong structure. It was important that the cornerstone was set just right just perfectly so that all the other stones could be built upon it and line up and you wouldn't have a structure that's leaning or off. And so God gives us this imagery of Jesus being the cornerstone that his people now as living stones and what they talk about in 1 Peter will be built upon. And so now we sing songs like Christ alone, cornerstone, right? But listen, not everyone will be built upon this cornerstone. Isaiah 8, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here we see that people will either recognize him as the cornerstone and be built upon and rest upon him, or they're going to stumble over him. He's going to be a stumbling block. He's going to be offensive to, him, to them. Like he's either going to be your everything or he's going to be offensive to you. The Bible doesn't really leave room for people to just be kind of like meh about Jesus, right? There's no neutral ground about Jesus. There, the Bible doesn't make it uh, a, a stance that you can say he's just a good, wise teacher or just a prophet, right? He can't just be your co-pilot or your homeboy, right? Like, no, you're either resting upon him and you're being built upon him or you're stumbling over him. But here's the surprising part. The stone that was rejected, Jesus was rejected. This Jesus that the religious leaders of his time rejected will be what the people of God will rest upon and be built upon in the future. Like this Jesus that was rejected is now the solid rock upon which we stand. Now, you might be thinking, okay, 
Jesus was rejected by human beings who had evil intentions to reject him. And they reject God out of their evil intentions. And yet it was this rejection that led to his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, which accomplished salvation for his people. Now I'm going, I'm going to the deep end of the pool right now, all right? So if you're, if you're not cool with that, just stick in the shallow end, but I'm going to the deep end, okay? So did this happen by chance? Did this happen by fate? Like, or was God, was God just kind of cleaning up the mess that we left? No, it's even better than any of those things. Look back at Mark 12, verse 11. It's better than any of those things. Verse 11 says, This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, there is this beautiful doctrine called the providence of God. And a lot of our world lives as if the world is governed by chance or the world is governed by fate. A lot of the world, they don't even realize it, but they feel like it's governed by karma. But followers of Jesus get to rest in and enjoy the providence of God that we have a God that cares for us and directs all things in the universe. In his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, John Piper offers these thoughts about God's providence. He writes, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback, and the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, but feel in our bones that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus believe that God preserves and governs the world. Sometimes we can't always see how or why God is working, but we do believe that nothing is outside of his control. And J.I. Packer once said, His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God. He's sent to live uh, out in the fields like a beast in the field. I mean, talk about the, the proud being humbled. King Nebuchadnezzar got a taste of that, right? He was humbled as he's out in the field like a wild animal. And it was then that he write, that says in Daniel 4, verse 35, King Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And so in this parable and in this last week of Jesus's earthly ministry before his death and resurrection, it seems like the rebel tenants might be ruining the plan for the vineyard, right? Like, I mean, it might seem like the, uh, the, the religious leaders, they're scheming against Jesus. Like, are they going to come up with a plan that will be against his? But the providence of God says that what man intended for evil, God will intend for good. And it is the resurrection of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection that will accomplish salvation for his people. It is the rejection of Jesus that will allow us now to be freed from our enslavement of sin so that we might no longer reject him, but receive him. 
It is the work of Christ that has rescued us from our enslavement to sin so that we might no longer reject him, but receive him. And so for us, this means that even when it seems like evil is winning or life is spinning out of control, we can trust that the purposes and plans of God cannot be frustrated or stopped. And we can trust that, yes, God pursues patiently, that, yes, God pursues with a faithful love, but also that God pursues according to his providential plan. Now, typically, we experience the pursuit of God's faithful love through normal means of grace, through experiencing his beautiful creation or through hearing about his love uh, uh, spoken to us through the word being preached or through a brother and sister in Christ sharing with us the good news or, or showing us the love of Christ through their actions. But sometimes we experience the pursuit of God's faithful love through unusual and extraordinary circumstances. And I was reading about a scuba diver in Australia that claimed he had been saved at the bottom of the sea. You see, this scuba diver was diving amongst a shipwreck, and as he was swimming along, he noticed an oyster uh, on top of a rock with a piece of paper in it. And the man swam over and pulled this paper out from the oyster and found that it was a gospel tract. Now, most gospel tracts, I think, are very cheesy, and I do not appreciate all of them, but the truth behind them still has such good, it's, it's the power to save, right? And God can work through our cheesiness, and God can work through our bad preaching, and God can, write, can work through our best attempts at gospel tracts. But this man, you can just picture it, in scuba gear at the bottom of the ocean around a shipwreck, and he's just reading this gospel track. But listen, he said, and I quote, I could hold out against God's mercy in Christ no longer since it pursues me. I could hold out against God's mercy in Christ no longer since it pursues me. And I think we've all, if you are in Christ, you've had that moment where it just, I can't hold out against the hound of heaven any longer. Like his mercy and his grace, I can look back in my life and see how he was pursuing me in this situation and this situation and leading me here and doing this and through this pain and trial and through this hardship and through this disappointment, I can hold out no longer against God's mercy in Christ. It pursues me. And he said right there at the bottom of the ocean, he became a repentant, converted, sin-forgiven man saved at the bottom of the sea. So yes, the hound of heaven can swim, in case you wondered. As I was reading that man's story, I, I thought of Psalm 139, and we'll, we'll close with this. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That's a good psalm for all of us who are prone to run from God, who are prone to hide from God. And so as we close, I'd ask that you guys close, close your eyes for a moment. We're going to close in prayer. But before we do that, I want you to think of a situation in your life currently where you have felt like God was distant from you. Like if there's a certain situation, maybe it's at your workplace or at your school, maybe it's at your home, uh, uh, maybe there's just some place in your life right now that you feel like God is distant. 
Or maybe think back to a time in your past where you still are struggling with, like, God, where were you in that situation? Like, I know I, I hear this whole hound of heaven pursuing me, but, but think back to a time that was so just dark and hard in your life that it really seems difficult to understand how God could have been present there with you. And as that image is in your head, let me read God's word over you and ask that it would redeem those images and memories. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. With your eyes closed right now, going to ask some questions for you to think about and prayerfully prayerfully think about in your life right now in this moment how can you thank the lord for how he has been patient with you praise god for his patience what areas of your heart or your mind is he pursuing right now that you are trying to run from him and hide. Who might the hound of heaven be pursuing through you right now as sons and daughters of light that he has sent into the world? Have you embraced this faithful love of God that would send his son to us who had rebelled against him? How might you rest and trust in the providence of God even when his hand may seem hidden? Father God, please help us. We are prone to wander and run. But we thank you for pursuing us patiently. Out of your faithful love. Working all things together for our good. Lord, I ask for those who are running and straining that you would reveal to them how good and glorious and loving you are. May today be the day that they can run from your mercy no more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.